This morning we continue in our sermon series in the Psalms that we began last week. This sermon series is an invitation to all of us to immerse ourselves in God's word and to immerse ourselves in this amazing book, the amazing book of all 150 Psalms that lies at the very heart of God's word. And if you were here last week, you would have heard me say that the way we're going to approach this is to preach through about 12 psalms per summer, give or take. And so that means that about 13 or 14 years from now, we will have preached through all the psalms. And I joked last week at this service, sort of off the cuff, I said, you know, this means that one of these days you might tell your grandchildren I was there when Jamie said this. And we all laughed. And then I got home and I started doing the math And I realized that depending on God's will and his plan and his timing for my oldest children, I could be saying to my grandchildren in 13 or 14 years. So that's a little terrifying. But here we are, week number two, Psalm 2. And as we dive in today to God's word and look at the the second Psalm, let me remind us of the lenses through which we want to look at the Psalms, regardless of what psalm we're looking at on a particular Sunday. And the first lens is the lens of revelation. We believe that all of God's word is God's holy revelation of himself to his people. And so we want to be thinking as we look at any particular psalm, how is God revealing himself to me through this psalm? That's the lens of revelation. Then there's the lens of response, If the Psalms are God's invitation to us to respond to his revelation, then whatever Psalm we're in on a particular Sunday, how is God calling me to respond to him? How is God calling his people to response through this Psalm? And then the last lens is the lens of Jesus himself. Remember, it was Jesus who said he came to fulfill what was written about him in the Psalms. So whatever psalm we're looking at on a particular Sunday, we want to be asking, how does this psalm point me to Jesus? How does this psalm point to the one who fulfilled this psalm, to the one who prayed this psalm, and to the one who makes this psalm possible in me? So with that background, let's turn to Psalm 2. You can find it in your pew Bible somewhere towards the middle or on page 448, I believe. And the title of this psalm, you'll notice that Gail read it to us, the title of this psalm, The Reign of the Lord's Anointed. These titles go back many centuries to the earliest manuscripts of the psalms. So every week we're going to hear those titles. Sometimes we'll hear the instructions, you know, a psalm of David or for the choir master or for the stringed instruments. Those are ancient instructions and ancient titles. The reign of the Lord's anointed. The author of our psalm today is David. And we know that not because Psalm 2 says it. Psalm 2 doesn't say a psalm of David. But we know that because of the New Testament. This psalm is quoted and prayed a few times in the New Testament and in one particular place in Acts 4 Verse 25, Peter and John, who are about to pray it, say to God, God, you spoke these words by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of David. 
So David wrote this psalm. We hear David's voice throughout this psalm. We hear it as the psalmist, as the psalmist in verses 1 and 2, 4 and 5, first half of verse 7. You'll notice this psalm switches sort of who's speaking, who we're hearing from. So I want to give you a lay of the land here. We also hear David as the psalmist in verses 10 through 12. In verses 7 through 9, we'll hear David again, but then he's talking as the king. There's two other voices we hear from in this psalm briefly. We hear from evil rulers, what they're saying in their counsel of wickedness in verse 3. And we hear from the Lord Almighty in verse 6. There will be a quiz on all this next week, so I hope you were taking good notes. So David wrote this psalm under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for his coronation as king. This is what's classified as a coronation psalm. As we go through the book of Psalms the next 13, 14 years, sometimes we'll be in psalms of lament. Sometimes we'll be in psalms of ascent. Sometimes we'll be in imprecatory psalms, which are calling down the righteous wrath of God on evil. Today's psalm is a coronation psalm. It's the first one we've gotten to. So I wasn't joking last week when I said that the psalms can be thought of very much like God's book of common prayer. And just like our Anglican book of common prayer contains within it uh, prayers and liturgies, the liturgies, many, most of our Anglican liturgies are 500 years old, a lot of them written by Thomas Cranmer himself. Similarly, the Psalms also contain within them some very, very, very early liturgies. And so David wrote this Psalm as a liturgy for his own coronation. It would have been used as a liturgy for other coronations of other kings in his line. Now, it's important for us to know this morning, as we look at this psalm, it's written against a backdrop of evil. It's written against the backdrop of rebellion against God. If I was using a musical illustration, I would say the, the bass note that supports this entire psalm is really a bass note, an undertone of evil, rebellion, that's the backdrop of this psalm that David wrote long ago. But we have something more than just that this morning, an ancient liturgy written by an ancient king, King David for his coronation and others. Because we have the lens of revelation. We look at this and we know that this is not just pointing us to King David. This is pointing us to King Jesus. And we're pointed that way first in the question of the psalmist. The question of the psalmist as he grapples with evil, as David looks evil in the face. And the question that David asks as he grapples with evil is very much the same question that I would imagine we ask when we grapple with evil, and it's the question, why? Why? That question dominates all of verses one and two, so we could read those verses like this. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? Why do the kings of earth set themselves? And why do the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed? Why? That's the question of the psalmist, and it's a question that the Psalms allow us quite often 
to ask in the face of evil. We shouldn't rush past this question. We shouldn't be uncomfortable with this question. We shouldn't think that it's unchristian to, in the face of evil, looking at it in the face of rebellion, to sometimes simply say, sometimes simply cry out to God, why? The Psalms give us permission to do that. Why? There's no answer yet in Psalm 2. He doesn't skip there too quickly because as he asks this question of evil and as he asks this question of rebellion, he also reveals the heart behind it. David reveals the heart behind all evil, the heart behind all rebellion. And this was true in David's day. This was true in Hitler's day. And it's true in our day. The heart behind all evil is a heart set against God. Our text points this out. Kings of the earth, we see in verse 2, the rulers set themselves against the Lord. They set themselves against the Lord's anointed. So at the bottom, at the root of all evil, all of it is a heart set against God. And this is important for us to, to grab hold of as we look at Psalm 2. Because we may read this psalm and, and immediately jump to specifics, specific kings, specific rulers. And we'll get there, but not yet. Not yet. Don't let your mind get too specific. Because this is not so much about a specific king or a specific ruler. Because if it was, it would mean that Psalm 2 has an expiration date on it. And it was only applicable to David's time. The psalm does not have an expiration date on it. It's God's living word. It has very much relevance for our day and our time and for all who've come before us and will come after us. This is not so much about specifics, more about a spirit of evil, a spirit of rebellion that is set against God. There is a spirit of evil, a spirit of rebellion that, apart from the medication of the blood of Jesus infects every human heart. And that infection manifests itself in rebellion against God, rebellion against his anointed. David saw it. And if you track with David's story, sometimes David fell prey to it. And it's deadly and it's demonic and destructive. And all around us is evidence of this power of a spirit of rebellion against God. Let me prove my point here that this is more about a spirit than it is about specifics. Hear this from the New Testament, Ephesians 6.12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil. So, Yes, the world is full of specific people and rulers in specific places who are forces of evil and rebellion. But as we read Psalm 2, this is amazing about God's word, we do so in a long line of God's people who have read it and prayed it with a rotating cast of changing rulers 
and kings. So Psalm 2 begins by drawing us to look at evil, to grieve over it, and to begin to pray over it with one word, why? And again, we can sit in that question. Christians don't skip past the why. We can lament and we can grieve and we can cry out to God, God, you see the evil. God, you see the rebellion. Why and what are you going to do about it, God? What is your response? And we can hear God's response in the laughter of God. The laughter of God. Verses four and five. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So, what's God's response to evil? It's God's response to the schemes of evil men. God's response is laughter. But this is not a laugh like you've ever heard before. This is not a laugh like we could ever imagine. God's laugh is a laugh of conquering thunder. That's what God's laugh sounds like. I was reflecting on this verse that all week, this passage all week, and I was thinking about the, the years that I spent growing up in Florida. And if you've ever visited Florida or lived in Florida, you'll know that about 11 and a half months out of the year, a daily occurrence is an apocalyptic, earth-shaking, severe thunderstorm. Sky turns black, the wind lets loose, the lightning the sound that shakes your house, all the tourists run for cover. It's fantastic. I love a good old Florida thunderstorm. And I was thinking about it because on Friday, there was some sort of severe thunderstorm predicted or forecasted for Fairfax, Virginia. And of course, you know, at some point I looked over west and there was some, you know, gray cloud in some direction. Severe thunderstorms in Virginia are not the same as they are in Florida. I think it might have hailed for like three minutes in La Plata or something <laughs> on Friday. God's laughter is not like a northern Virginia thunderstorm where you look at the radar and there's some specks of red that you might dodge. God's laughter is like a Florida thunderstorm where the whole state is swallowed up in dark red for a good two hours. God's laugh is a laugh of thunder. Remember the old Rich Mullins' song, Awesome God. If you know this, sing the responses. Don't leave me out here hanging on my own. I, I tried this at 745, and I think one person knew the song. So I know Mike knows it. I did not give him warning about this. Mike knows all the hand motions, too. <laughs> when he rolls up his sleeves, he ain't just putting on the ritz. Our God is an awesome God. Come on. There is thunder in his footsteps and lightning in his fist. Our God is an that's right, there's thunder in his footsteps. I gotta cut you off, Mike. There's thunder in his footsteps and lightning in his fists. It's God's conquering laughter in the face of evil. Let me point out two things here about the posture of God's laugh. 
two words here that are key for us as we think about God laughing at evil. And the first word is the word sit. As he laughs, God sits. The Bible doesn't portray God pacing, standing, concerned, worried. No, the Bible portrays our laughing God as sitting, utterly in control. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He sits. Another word from verse 6 is the word set. Say the word set, set. And I want to point that out because in verse 2, the psalmist said that the posture of evil is a posture set against the Lord and his anointed. How does God answer the posture of evil? With his own set. Verse 6, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God sees the evil. God sees the rebellion of this world. He sees a world set against him. And God, in his mercy and in his majesty and in victory, sets his king upon a throne to conquer. If God were just described in this psalm for us today as just laughing it might mean that he's awesome. It might mean that, yes, he has thunder in his footsteps and lightning in his fist, but it might not be much comfort to us. It might mean he's strong. It might not mean he's comforting. He can laugh at it. You're telling me that God looks at all the evil in the world and the death and the war, and he just laughs? That would be little to no comfort if it were not for the fact that we also know his heart. And it's a heart that sets his king upon a throne to deal with it all. Jesus, our king Jesus, is going to deal with it all. He's going to deal with all the evil, he's going to deal with all the war. He's going to deal with all the death and all the destruction. Our God laughs at evil. He sits on his throne and he sets his king, Jesus, upon a throne to deal with it. God sits, yes, and that's good news, but also God sets his king. And that's really good news. And that's the answer in the laughter of God. The answer to evil, the answer to rebellion is the conquering king himself. In verses 7 through 9, again, this is David talking. He's telling us what God the Father said to him upon his coronation as king. God said to David, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Verse 8. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. God set up David as king and God set up David as the father of a line of kings who would come after him to reign as God's king over God's people to defeat God's enemies. God set up David as king in what we call the Davidic line of kings to show his ideal for what his king looks like, 
what his king operates like. But if you've ever read through or flipped through the Old Testament, you'll know that no king can live up to that ideal. Some do a better job of it than others, but no king can ever live up to it. And that's why Psalm 2 for us this morning is not just an ancient liturgy that points to ancient kings who could never really live up to all this stuff. Psalm 2 points us to King Jesus. And catch this. I want to point out the contrast for us. Because David could only hear God's laughter at evil. Jesus is himself God's laughter at evil. The people who first prayed this psalm, the people who first read this psalm were pointed through it to a particular kind of kingship. But now we read this psalm and we pray this psalm and we are pointed to a particular king. And so to the question, why? And to the question, God, what is your response? God's thunderous laughter echoes across all of human history. And God's thunderous laughter echoes across past, present, and future. And God's laughter can be translated into one word, Jesus. Jesus is the content of the laughter of God. There's a hymn we sing sometimes called Hail to the Lord's Anointed. It says it this way, Hail to the Lord's Anointed, great David's greater son. Hail in the time appointed, his reign on earth begun. He comes to break oppression, to set the captive free, to take away transgression and rule in equity. David and all of those in his line could only dream of this kind of king because this kind of king not only receives a decree from God, Jesus is the kind of king who is himself the decree of God. So knowing this, we can look at the whole story of Jesus' life in this way. We can look at his incarnation and we can think of that night in Bethlehem when God looks upon a world in darkness, enslaved by sin, and God laughs at the darkness and his laughter can be heard in the sound of a crying baby. Think about Jesus' crucifixion in this way. All the evil schemes of men that plotted together to hang Jesus on a cross and they mock Jesus and they spit on Jesus. And God's response is to mock the evil back and to laugh at the evil. And his laughter on the cross can be heard in the cry of Jesus saying, it is finished. Think about Jesus' resurrection as the laughter of God. That morning in the garden, as God the Father looks at death and laughs at it in the face, and the laughter is in the sound of an angel saying, he is not here, he is risen. Jesus is the content 
of the laughter of God. Look with me at verse 8 now. We see what this king is given. This should be a comfort to us. The king is given the nations as his heritage. The king is also given the ends of the earth as his possession. And I want to point this out. It's, it's good for us to ask, well, then what purpose, for what purpose is Jesus given the, king, the nations and the ends of the earth? If all that the next verse says he's going to do is pulverize them. <laughs> Verse 9, he's going to break them with a rod of iron. He's going to dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Why is King Jesus given the nations and given the ends of the earth as his inheritance to then break them and destroy them? It's so that he can put them under subjection of himself and so he can remake them. He's going to remake the nations. Praise God. He's going to remake the ends of the earth. Behold, I am making all things new. Remember the promise from 1 Corinthians 15 that we looked at a few months ago. This is from uh, that chapter, verse 28. Jesus said he's going to put all things. So that means all rulers, all nations, all schemes in subjection under himself. And I bet while he's doing it, he'll be laughing. A glorious conquering laugh. With that, our psalm wraps up with a warning and an invitation, and that's where we'll wrap up today, the, the warning first in verses 10 through 11. It's the psalmist now writing again a warning. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. So we can turn to this verse whenever we're looking for a prayer to pray or whenever we're looking for a way to intercede for the specific kings of the earth, for the specific rulers of the earth who are working evil, who are workers of rebellion against God. We can pray this prayer over them. Oh, kings, be wise. Oh, kings, be warned. Serve the Lord. And rejoice with trembling. And I, I love how the NIV puts that last verse. It says, celebrate his rule with trembling. I think it gets at it more clearly. Oh, kings of earth, oh, rulers of the earth, celebrate his rule with trembling. You king, you president, you mayor, you rector, you think you rule, but you would have no authority were it not given to you from above. King Jesus rules. Celebrate his rule with trembling. It's a warning and it's also an invitation. Verse 12 is the invitation. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. It's a striking verse, isn't it? It's a bit jarring whenever I hear it. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. It should be striking. It should be jarring because the blessing and the refuge and the security and the safety from the righteous wrath of God upon evil and upon rebellion and upon sin, 
The blessing and the refuge and the safety is only found in one place, in the Son. There is no safety apart from him. Kiss the Son, lest you perish. What is this kiss exactly? It's the kiss of of, of belief. It's the kiss of submission. It's the kiss of worship. The kiss of coming under the submission of the king. And it's the kiss that leads us to not only become his subject, but to also become his heir. The last two words of this psalm are important. Last two words. Blessed are all who take refuge where? In him. Hmm. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. David was pointing to Christ. He was pointing to a king who would not only give refuge, David was pointing to a king who would be refuge. We'll sing this later. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame but wholly lean on Jesus' name. So kiss the Son and find in him all the answers to the why and the answers to the what are you gonna do about it, God? Kiss the Son and find in him the laughter of God, the thunderous conquering laughter of God at evil, Kiss the sun and find in him refuge for your soul. Oh God, we thank you and praise you for your word. Thank you and praise you for your son. Lord, we bring to you our why and our lament and our grief over evil and we thank you for your response, oh God. Thank you for your son, Jesus, your king whom you have set upon your throne. Lead us once again to him. We pray in his name. Amen.